episode 20 of the Analytics FC podcast um, with me, Tom Warville, as usual, joined by Sam Gregory. Uh, our guest this week is Simon Gleave, who's head of analysis at Infrastrata Sports. Uh, Simon, if you'd like to introduce yourself a little bit more. Yeah, my name's Simon Gleave. I work at uh, Infrastrata Sports, which is a large sports data company based in uh, the Netherlands. Um, it's based at a place called Nieuwegein, which is um, just outside Utrecht, which is where I live. Um, and Utrecht is just um, about half an hour on the train or so from uh, from Amsterdam. And I've uh, I've been in Infrastrata Sports now for sixteen years in various different uh, different roles. And now I work in a in the department that's called Analytics. There are four of us. There's a manager of Analytics. There's me, the head of analysis. And we have two uh, young developers who uh, do all the clever stuff, I suppose you could say. <laughs> and uh, we work primarily within that analytics department with National Olympic Committees. That's, uh, that's our sort of main business. But because the company collects results, collects information data, um, also performance data on all sports that you can think of and a number of sports you've probably never heard of, we also do things with, say, football. So we... we we're a sort of research and development arm of, uh, of the company as well as having clients for uh, the analytics that we do. So how did you specifically get into football analytics and I guess a little broad, more broadly sports analytics in general? Because as you mentioned, you do, you do this for a lot of other sports other than football. That's right. Um, well, I mean, I'll, 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 go back a, I'll go back about 30 years to sort of start the story. Um, I, did a, I did a degree in applied statistics in the 80s, <laughs> in, uh, in Sheffield in the UK. And um, after that, I worked in various things. I did market research for a bit. I worked in market research for a bit. I worked in academia for a number of years. And I guess the, the big sort of um, thing for me was discovering the internet, which um, was in 1992. Someone at work, I was working at uh, City University at that time in, uh, in London, and somebody there said to me, uh, you can talk about football uh, with people all over the world. And <laughs> he showed me how to do it. And uh, I started uh, going to, um, to these news groups and talking about, uh, talking about football. Then um, through all of that, uh, I wrote, well, I put together a sort of guide to the 1994 World Cup in the States, where I asked people from all over the world in the different countries that uh, were at the United States World Cup to uh, to write something for me on their teams and I put that out on one of these news groups and I sent it to newspapers and people seemed to sort of like it so that was quite encouraging and then I went to the World Cup in the States and I saw an, uh, an internet browser for the first time which would have been mosaic I guess right back in those days so as soon as I came back to England in 94 I taught myself how to make websites because I'd now seen one. <laughs> and from there, I made websites. Um, I made guides to the Premier League, guides to Euro 96, the 98 World Cup. Um, and I did this sort of season after season. And it was the same basic theme of asking people to say something, you know, to, to, to talk about their, their club. So name who the key players are, write something about the history um, write something about what you expect for the coming season. It was quite static. I used to update the results, etc. Um, and you know that was sort of how I started doing that. That was all in my spare time alongside my work as a research statistician at uh, City University and later at the Centre of Longitudinal Studies, which is at the University of London somewhere. Um, and then uh, I, I was I was told about 
out in Fistrada Sports by someone who I knew in this sort of group of people who chatted about football. And I wrote to Infostrada and I said, you know, I'd quite like to come and work with you. <laughs> and I hassled them a bit, sent them emails over a period of time. And then in December 1999, they asked me if I wanted to come over and have an interview. So I came over here, saw the place, was pretty impressed with it. It was quite small in those days still. But uh, it's, actually been, it's actually been going since 1995. We had our 20th year anniversary party uh, towards the end of last year. So I, uh, came, I came for this interview. I liked it. They liked me. They offered me a job. And I started in April 2000. And I began by working on the media side. So that was you know, trying to get more data, trying to get more um, data insights into the media. We already had media clients primarily in Holland at that point, but we signed up the BBC fairly early on in those days, um, in, in my first few days that I was there. And we provided background information on football, on other sports to uh, all, these different, uh, all these different clients. Um, and it's quite a standard thing these days, but in those days, it, it certainly wasn't. In those days, it was uh, a very different uh, kettle of fish trying to get this stuff accepted. In, in a way, it's similar to the way that analytics is now. Um, back then, it was just a more basic information and you know stuff about streaks, even stuff about head to heads. You know, to get that actually used was was tricky. And I mean, I remember one thing in particular in at the 2002 World Cup, we had a, a statistic, a fact, I suppose you'd call it, about uh, different Polish goalkeepers saving penalties at World Cups because uh, that had happened. Uh, that had happened uh, at uh, that World Cup. I think uh, the goalkeeper had saved uh, in saved penalties in two different group matches. The Polish goalkeeper, and we had a, had another example from earlier. And the only way you could get this really used was uh, was by it being presented as a sort tr- sort of trivia question that a presenter would ask to the analysts in the studio. So it was a sort of funny thing, and that was it. Whereas now it's you know all over the place. And I mean, other things that we've done, I suppose, that we did, I suppose, in those areas with, you know, getting stuff into the media, we, what we used to do is, and again, this is going back a long way, we managed to get one-liners on the TV over here for all the goals, all the goals that were shown on the highlights programs on what would be the Dutch BBC. They were sort of factual things that were coming from us. And I mean, again, it's much more standard now. You see that everywhere. You see it on all match of the day. But we were doing this, you know, 2002, 2003, I guess. And funnily enough, one of the very, well, the very first time I ever saw what you would describe as a shop map was when um, a, a, new com- a new TV company showed the, had the highlights. They won the, the contract to show the highlights of Dutch football in about 2005, I guess it must be. And on their first program, we provided them with a shot map showing where the shots were taken from that uh, that day in the match, which I think was between Rhoda and Final, if I remember rightly, and showing where they'd gone, you know, where they'd gone wide of the goal um, on the left in, in, into the net on the left hand side, or whatever it would be, you know, the shot on target, which was uh, in the left top corner, or whatever. And so they presented this on TV on this first night, and the analysts that were in the studio just had no idea what to do with it. So, you know, this is more than a decade ago now, and it really shows how things have changed. And I suppose when it comes to um, analytics itself, um, let me see, how did that sort of happen? So, I mean, I've, I've, I've worked with this data and, and trying to make stories out of data, I suppose, for a long, long time now. But um, in about 2011... I discovered the 
football analytic blogging world, as it was then. Um, and that basically consisted of Chris Anderson, um, soccer quant, as he was called, um, Zach Slayton, who was, uh, they're obviously both American, um, and uh, they were in different parts of the States, one on one side, one on the other. Zach was in, uh, in Seattle, and they were doing quite interesting stuff. So I got in touch with them. And I think Omar, Omar Chowdhury was also one of the very, very early ones. He had his own little blog while he was at uh, university. And so I discovered this type of thing. And at the time, we were already doing modeling. We already had the Euro Club Index, for example. We, were all, we already had a basic model for what is now our Olympic medal table prediction, the virtual medal table. So we were already doing this, but we didn't have an analytics department. So I started playing around with things and, you know, an analytics department was eventually created um, at Infrastrata and it's, it, it is, you know, it's, it's basically not far removed from where it is now in terms of numbers and in terms of what we actually do. Uh, and, um, you know, from there we just sort of developed things along the way and, you know, very, very similar to the types of stuff that, uh, that you see around, I suppose, on the, on the blogging world, which has obviously absolutely exploded in the five years since I first discovered it. There were one or two others around at that time. James Grayson was around, I believe. Uh, Benjamin Pugsley was around at that point. I just didn't see them. Um, and then I suppose the final thing for me when it comes to football was I went to the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in 2012 and I met this, I met the sort of soccer analytics guys, as they uh, called themselves, at this, uh, at, at this sort of meeting that they had at an Irish pub. So I met Chris for the first time. I met Zach for the first time. I met various other people um, there. And I went to various things at this conference. And what struck me at this conference was that hockey, ice hockey, was very, very similar to football. And I mean, football I've always loved. I wanted to get much more into, you know, analysing football in this way. So when I came back to Holland, I looked around for hockey sites. And that's how I discovered James Grayson, who was doing stuff which was based on hockey. He was doing, you know, TSR and that sort of thing. Um, so that was the first time I'd come across that. So it's quite interesting that the that there is such there is that similarity between ice hockey and football, and you still see that a lot of the stuff that's in ice hockey is has come into football. Um, there's a lot of crossover between the two things. I think that's that's very interesting. So that's basically the story, I suppose, if it makes sense. So moving on to some of the actual specifics you mentioned there. <clears throat> You talked about uh, a virtual metal table. Is mm -hmm. this something that you're working on ahead of Rio 2016, or do you have other things you're working on with Infostrata ahead of the Olympics this summer? Yeah, the, the virtual metal table is something that we've actually had running for a while now. Uh, we launched it last year in March when it was 500 days before the Olympics. What it basically is, is it's a, it's a prediction of the final metal table for the Olympic Games. And what we do is, I'm not going to go into great detail because people can find this out in other ways, but basically what we do is we assign medals based on data to, um, to, to the individuals within each event. And then you sum those up and you get to a medal table. We first did this for the 2012 Olympics and it was pretty good. So um, it, was, it was published in the Times every month and a few other newspapers and uh, media around the world each month. And... For a, for a country like uh, Great Britain, for example, we got Great Britain's medal total within two of what they got. So Great Britain won 65 medals. We predicted 67 just before the Olympics. 
Canada Azure Canadian uh, Sam, I think it was a similar story. I think we had Canada within one or two medals of what Canada actually got. And I mean, obviously, it's not perfect. There are other countries where it wasn't quite so good. But in general, we were pretty close on the vast majority of countries. And this is something now which, you know, is, uh, is beginning to become, I wouldn't call it the standard, but it's beginning to become something which, you know, you're seeing around the world. We're, we're, we're able to have this published all over the place now. When we release a new version of it, then uh, it gets published in lots of different places. I saw you yesterday that uh, UK Sport gave a press conference and referred to it in that because they've obviously got their own internal uh, internal ideas of what they're going to get uh, at uh, the Olympics this year. So that's one aspect of what we do for the Olympic Games, the virtual medal table. It's a nice little thing. It's up on, a web, it's up on our website. People can find it. Um, people can also go to our Twitter feed which covers Olympic sports, Infrastrata Gold, and we refer to it on there as well when it gets uh, released. The next one comes out next Tuesday, so then it's updated with all of the results from uh, the last month that uh, feed into it. And yeah, it's an, it's an interesting little thing, but it's it's by far not the only thing that we uh, that we do for the Olympics. I mean, we're we're quite a large company, so we do a lot of uh, media stuff. We work with the IOC. We provide biographies for um, all of the different uh, all of the different participants that are at the Olympic Games. So that's uh, in excess of ten thousand biographies that we have to uh, that we have to produce. It's something, that we, again, that we've done for many, many years, the historical results. We have an entire database of historical results, and that's not just one, two, threes. That's every single participant that uh, has been built up over the years. And so we provide historical data information to uh, all sorts of people, whether it be media, whether it be uh, National Olympic Committees or uh, federations or whatever. So there's a wide variety of things that, uh, that we do on that front with, uh, with the Olympic Games. So going going back to the football front, I mean that is fascinating. The sort of uh, depth and and uh, you know the amount of people who use the the medal table and the Olympic related products. Um, is the sort of Euro Club Index used on a similar scale, or is that something that's more a public works? And sort of what is Euro Club Index uh, for people that haven't heard of it? Okay, well the Euro Club Index is what's what's public in any case is uh, it's a ranking of every top flight club in Europe and it's based only on results so it's not going into any great performance data level or anything like that it's just purely based on results and we rank all of the teams that are playing in the top flight in Europe on a website which is euroclubindex.com so you can see that anytime it's um, updated every day so, every, so lit, uh, there's football being played somewhere in Europe every day, so uh, it's worth updating it every day. It's updated at the end of the day each day, um, so then theoretically everything's finished for that particular day. Um, there are league projections for, I think, 15 competitions on, uh, on that site. There are, um, there are odds for well, uh, um, win-draw-loss odds for every match that are in those... Uh, that are in those leagues, which are calculated from the Euro Club Index, the Euro Club Index um, on the site. And it's again, it's something that we've uh, we've built that actually with a uh, with another company here in Utrecht. So we've done that together, and that website's all public. As I say, we can th th there are more teams within that than than what we actually uh, show on the website. So we go go down into lower levels that's uh, that's no problem it's basically as long as we have the data on the results we can do it for you know whatever team it is whether it be a team from uh, 
the English fourth level, fourth uh, tier. You know, Cambridge United's my team. They they have a rating just like everybody else, or the Swiss second division, or whatever it is. So it, it goes much further than that. But I think for the for the interest of people out there, you know, the site itself, you can go to that. You can see where your team is ranked as long as they're playing in the top tier. It's all free. It's open on the website. Um, you can see what, how the changes go if you check back from time to time. And at the moment, you know, it's 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 a great surprise to find Barcelona at number one, Real Madrid at number two, Bayern Munich at number three, which they have been for some time, all of those. Atletico Madrid at number four. Um, the English, the Premier League teams come in uh, from about number seven, I think. I think uh, at the moment it's um, Arsenal at seven and Man City at eight, but it's, they're very close, so they switch from time to time. And it's interesting to see how that's changed as well since we first uh, released it, because when, when we first put it on that website in 2010, the English clubs were, were very dominant, of course. And uh, I know Sam's a Manchester United fan. Well, under, under Alex Ferguson, Manchester United were never outside the top three since we've done this. And of course, now they've dropped down to uh, 13th, 14th or whatever. So it's, uh, it's interesting to see how things have, how things have changed. I mean, it, we had data, or we, we, we had that uh, set up earlier before it went out there. So around 2008, 2009, the top four places in uh, the Euro Club Index, three of them were occupied by English teams, Manchester United, Chelsea and Liverpool. So it's quite amazing how that's all changed in a relatively short space of time. So it's a simple ranking um, that's available for anybody to to have a look at and uh, and see how their clubs are going on. Again, it has a, an associated Twitter feed, so you can go and follow it on there. Euro Club Index, very simple. And I mean, I've I've put stuff out on my Twitter from time to time on it as well. Probably uh, probably a little bit too much, but I'm quite a big uh, I'm quite a big fan of it. I like uh, I like it a lot. Uh, one thing I think it's fair to say you've been known for on Twitter is promoting stuff which is done publicly and. If that's simple or does as well as something that's complicated, but it's a little easier to understand and it's really simple. And I think what sort of highlights this more than anything is score, which is something mm-hmm. that's easy to understand and does quite well in terms of predicting and sort of showing narratives that teams are over and underperforming. So can you explain a little bit about that and why you like using score? Sure. Sure. Um, again, score, just so that people understand what it is, uh, I call it, I, it's called score because it means uh, seasonal comparative results. It's a very, very simple idea. All I'm doing is I'm comparing the results this season with the results last season in exactly the same matches. So it's a simple thing to understand. And as you say, what it tends to show, certainly in the earlier parts of the season, is that uh, a team that appears to be doing very well is actually not doing any better than uh, than it was the previous season and is likely to not necessarily stay up in that lofty position. A great example of this is uh, when Arsenal topped the league for the first half of the season a couple of years ago, where I was told throughout the time that I was putting this out, showing that Arsenal were actually performing in exactly the same way as the previous year. It's just that the, the, the matches had fallen slightly differently, so they, were doing, uh, they appeared to be doing much better. And people were criticising this and saying, this is rubbish, the top of the league, they're a much better team, giving me all sorts of reasons why Arsenal were a much better team than they had been the previous season. And of course, in the second half of the season, they, uh, they, they didn't produce such great results and didn't win the league. So I think that's uh, that. That was a very strong example of where that works quite well. It 
it's very similar with the teams who jump up into the top four. If we exclude, if we exclude Leicester City from this, because Leicester City really are doing much better. But uh, in the past, you know, West Brom were up in the top four for for the best part of the first half of the season a few years ago. Southampton were last season, and again, it just showed they were performing slightly better, or perhaps not even not even better than a than a year earlier. And you know, as expected, they dropped off. So in that respect, it's very powerful. And as you say, it's very very simple. And it's funny with this because um, the very first time I did this, and I mean, it's you know, I'm sure loads of other people have done this. It's it's not anything that's particularly difficult to think up. But I first did this years and years and years ago because uh, Utrecht, who I'd been watching, had finished incredibly high in the Eredivisie, and they'd started the season, and I wanted to see whether you know whether they were really, I think, probably as bad as it appeared in comparison to the previous season. So I compared these first few results with the previous year and then I tried to get that into a newspaper here into the local newspaper here but of course you know they they, they felt that it was too complicated <laughs> even something simple as this is too complicated so it didn't happen and I didn't really do anything with it until I started um, and really until I started writing about it in a in a public way and putting it onto uh, onto a Twitter feed and then I discovered that it was you know incredibly popular people love it which you know I should really bring it back out again because I, I can do it still. It's all set up to do automatically these days. So I ought to, uh, I ought to just put it out again. But I quite like that nice graph and it's just a case of getting that, that sort of graphic back out again. Um, so, yeah, it's a nice, simple um, measure so that you can compare yourself to last season to see if you're doing better, basically. Um, there, there are, there's always some interesting stuff in it. Another one of the really interesting things uh, you've done on, I think, your blog, Scoreboard Journalism, is the uh, mm-hmm. the sort of Premier League forecasting uh, of you know people with different models, either from uh, the press or the blogging community, put forward their predictions for the you know end of season Premier League table, and you sort of collate these efforts and then see how they're doing versus the actual league positions. Um, why you know? This is obviously is probably I'm guessing takes quite a bit of time and it's something that like not many other people have done. What's the sort of rationale behind you know getting all these models together and comparing them? Is it to see if any are better than others, or is it just to see you know whether the community can find uh, you know putting all the models together whether there's something beneficial to looking at different methods? Because then you can go away and look at the the rankings and say you know person X is better than person Y and compare the methodologies is there like a central reason behind it or is it more so just because uh, people enjoy reading it <laughs> yeah yeah it's got a bit out of control this <laughs> actually yeah. um yeah I, I was on holiday in 2013 and i was bored and um i thought <laughs> i thought uh, naturally these predictions <laughs> I saw all these predictions coming out from from journalists. You know, they do it every year. The journalists put their predictions out in the, in the newspapers, and obviously, you know, I knew about people making making models, and, and predictions were coming out of models. It was uh, it was still the early days, and I think that's really gone uh, gone crazy the last year or two. But 2013, so I I, I thought well. This happens every year, and yet we never actually look at these things to see what performs well and what doesn't. It wasn't, it, it wasn't really anything more than just thinking, well, I wonder whether any of these predictions are any good. So I put a thing out there and said, you know, can, do people want to, uh, want to send me their 
model predictions because obviously all the journalist stuff is out there, all the media stuff is out there. And some fans picked up on that as well. And I think it was um, Konstantinos uh, Chapas. I think he helped with the collection of the data. So he put all the data together in an Excel sheet for me. For the Premier League, that was. I also did one for the Eredivisie that year, which was uh, very small. I think the first ones were the Eredivisie one was something like 12 or 13 different people. And the Premier League one in that first year was 26 which I thought was an incredible number, <laughs> if only I'd known. <laughs> and uh, th- th- then James Grayson made that graph that, uh, that he makes in order to compare them. And we just sort of did that for the season. It was a bit of fun, really, in the, that first season. But then what came out of that, with the Premier League in any case, was uh, that the people doing statistical models as a group were better than the journalists and the, the, the people who, who I'd collected off, uh, off the, the newspaper websites as a group, which I thought was very interesting. The best person of all, I think, was a journalist. So that was the, that, again, I think that was Joe Prince Wright, who did very well that year as well um, from, uh, from NBC. And then I thought, okay, well, this is interesting enough to do again. And the uh, yeah, we all know this, but if you if you have a prediction that performs well in one season, that doesn't mean that it's a great prediction. That it could it could be a great prediction, but it could also be that you've been very lucky. So to do it again, to do a second season of this, I thought that was a good idea. Let's see if these people who were good the first time around can be good the second time around. So that was that would have been last season. So at the beginning of last season, I collected all. The stuff again and this time I think I had something like double the number of uh, predictions I had some fans again in there I had some statistical models in there most of the people that you see on Twitter or on blogs put something in for this pre-season um, a, a lot of well-known journalists and again it was something that we then ran more we then ran every week through the season with, with James's, uh, James's plot um, James's sort of graph to show who's where and then it was picked up by Sporting Intelligence at the end of uh, at the end of the season. Nick Harris put some stuff out on it uh, on his uh, website, and I think it even appeared on the radio. It was nothing to do with me, but I think somebody was on the radio talking about uh, prediction and using this as an example. Um, and you know, I, I really like doing this, so I thought, okay, I'll do it again. Again, I was on holiday in the summer, so I tried to collect all the stuff together, and it was just before the Rugby World Cup, so it was pretty stressful stuff. Particularly when we ended up this time collecting ninety-two predictions for the Premier League, and I've got—I think I've got a similar number for the Eredivisie, which I've never actually managed to collate properly as yet. Um, the Premier League's taken me enough time to sort out, and you know, I think. Part of it was was just curiosity in terms of you know is anybody any good? Can they be good consistently, and those sorts of things. Um, but also you know having done it now, I think I've I think I'm beginning to learn quite a lot about how these predictions actually work. And one of the things that's very clear is all these different methods that people are using are coming up with relatively similar predictions, and it's very very difficult to beat the most basic uh, benchmark of just writing down the teams in the same order as last season, which, of course, is, you know, that's your first, uh, the first thing that you've got to beat. And that's very, very clear in all these seasons that that's a pretty tough thing to do, which is interesting for the Premier League, that is. 
and um, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll see how this one comes out this year. I've got I've, there's a couple of articles on there, or there's one article I think at the moment on this on uh, on my blog, which uh, Steve Lawrence has done, just looking at uh, looking at this this season. We've got one we've got one prediction this season, which is. Uh, which is head and shoulders above the rest, which is interesting. But again, because it's somebody who's ent- who's entered this for the first time, I I'd like to see it repeated. Shall we say, if it comes out this way at the end, he's predicted Leicester very well, so that's uh, not not as not as not to do as well as they're actually doing. But uh, virtually everybody had Leicester in the bottom five or six teams, I think, and uh, and this guy has predicted them in has or predicted them to finish in eighth. So. He's closer than uh, than anybody else, but uh, you know, again, I think it's a case of let's see it again. But this is the first season I've actually seen somebody who's out front, away from the rest, as a gap, which hasn't been there in the past, which I think is uh, is an interesting thing. And we've talked a lot about different league prediction models, and you notice during FA Cup weekends, all these models go away, and a lot of analytics Twitter seems to. Shut up shop for the weekend, which is not the case with you. You seem to heat up during FA Cup weekends. So with one coming up this weekend, one thing you've talked about a lot is upsets and looking at the biggest upsets in history, how many upsets we should expect. So can you talk a little bit about, first off, why you like the FA Cup so much? And secondly, what what is the sort of the thought process behind these upset pieces and looking at various upsets? Okay. Well... Sam, I'm, I'm a Cambridge United supporter. I've watched them my entire life. Um, I first went to a game in 1979. Some of the greatest games I've ever been to have been FA Cup matches. And they've not even been necessarily the most glamorous FA Cup matches. So just so that, just so that you know and so some of the listeners know, um, Cambridge United reached the FA Cup quarterfinals in 1990 when they were a fourth division club playing in the fourth tier as they are now. A year later, they reached the FA Cup quarterfinals again, playing as a third-tier club. And there's, a, there's hardly any teams who've reached the FA Cup quarterfinals as a fourth-tier club. So that's, you know, that's, that's incredible. And those things are obviously quite big memories of mine. Um, so that's why the FA Cup means a lot to me, I would say. It's, again, you know, Cambridge played Manchester United last season in the FA Cup, which was, uh, which was fantastic. You know, that was a high point of the season for me. So that's my interest in the FA Cup, and you know I'm obviously quite uh, I'm obviously quite old, probably in comparison to a lot of uh, a lot of your listeners. But uh, the FA Cup used to mean a heck of a lot in the old days, and it's perhaps not so much the case anymore. But uh, I think for people like me, and perhaps for some of the supporters who uh, support smaller clubs, it still means a great deal. When it comes to the upset side, I mean, I think it's quite interesting how that's all changed. I think in the past, just off the top of my head, I can remember, for example, um, I think it was Halifax beat Manchester City in the 1980 FA Cup, I think. Or you could take Bournemouth beating Manchester United in the 1984 uh, FA Cup, sorry, 1984 FA Cup. Uh, third round and you know you knew that these were big upsets because it was a a small team playing against a big team who put out their best side and wanted to win this competition and of course in the last I don't know how far back you'd go probably the last 15 18 years that's changed to the point where you've now got a situation where virtually all of the big teams are playing with weakened sides the smaller teams obviously aren't doing that anymore. And there's a gap between 
the very top of the Premier League and the rest of the Premier League, which has never been so big. And so there's an, there are interesting things happening. And shocks always interest me anyway, obviously, because my team has pulled off a few shocks in, in its time, which has been nice too, and it's been nice to be there. So shocks interest me anyway. And um, over the last few years, I've written a bit about this. I've written basically from two angles, which is what are, what are the biggest surprises, which we, can, which we can easily find out by looking at bookmakers' odds. So um, I began to collect these. I, I, you can work back. You could work back about uh, seven or eight years when I started this on uh, on uh, these odds comparison sites, the archives that they have. So I, I worked those back, and I could work out a, a, a sort of top group of these are the biggest upsets over the last eight, seven, eight years. It's now after. I think it's now twelve years. I've got uh, data on. Um, so you, you can put a sort of objective side to this. And there, there were some interesting things that came out of it. First of all, some of these shocks, um, some of these big shocks perhaps, were teams from the same division. Obviously, one of them would be away from home. But uh, you would have uh, Manchester United losing to Portsmouth in 2008 in the FA Cup. That was uh, that's one of the that's one of the biggest ten surprises of uh, of the last uh, dozen years. Despite the fact they were both Premier League teams at the time, and then the other angle for this is when you have a game like we had in the third round this year. This year, um, Oxford against Swansea, for example. So a, a fourth tier team playing at home against a Premier League team. It wasn't the case with Oxford Swansea. It was very close, but often you have the fourth tier team is the favourite in these matches, despite the fact that there's three divisions between them. In this case, Swansea was very marginally the favourite, but it's because they're playing with a weakened side, they're playing away from home. Often the, the, the team that is the favourite is doing extremely well in, uh, in their league. So there's been, there was enough written about Oxford leading up to that game. To uh, yeah, They're playing interesting football. They play very nice attacking football. They're a good side in that division. And Swansea are obviously uh, having their own uh, troubles. But... Uh, you, there is in no way that you can. There is no way you can objectively describe that as a shock, because the odds on that match were so close to one another that uh, it was almost expected that uh, something might happen and, and that uh, the fourth tier team would go through. And there are there are better examples of this. There's a number of matches that have taken place in the last ten years or so where, um, despite the fact there's been two or three divisions between the teams and the supposed underdog has won. They have been the favourites in that match, and I think this is—I uh, think this is fascinating. I think this is a very interesting uh, state of affairs, and it's something that anybody can see, can look up, and uh, and see what's going on. So I, I write about this a little bit, and of course, you know, originally I think the reason I started this was because I was furiously vlogging, and I didn't want to have a week in between where I wasn't doing something, so I was off looking for something to do. But I think this is an interesting area, so that's why uh, that's why I do it. And before we move on, do you still pay attention to Cambridge United, even though you probably don't get time to go to many games? Absolutely, I go. I go probably once a season, and it's the best best day of the year. <laughs> In terms of going to a football match, absolutely. <laughs> also, I just want to get one quick. Quick little thing in there. You mentioned Portsmouth being Manchester United in 2008, not being an upset. And I honestly think Man no, no, United would have won the trouble that year. Upset. No, no, no. Sorry, not being an upset in the um, in the same division. 
Yeah, which was the only thing standing between Man United and a second treble in 2008 because of Thomas Kujak. Just wanted <laughs> to get that in there. <laughs> you don't hold any grudges over that, do you, Sam? No? No, no. No grudges. <laughs> Absolutely not. It doesn't matter. He took a red card and a penalty in like the 80th minute, forced Rio to go in goal and try and his first job in goal is to try and save a penalty. Anyways, we can move on from that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So, um, obviously, there's the, uh, I mean, last year, there was a presentation done by yourself um, called The Aging Game, uh, which looked at your work about, I think, it's relative age effects and sort of age curves between different leagues. Uh, and that's some, something that sort of spread a larger conversation between, uh, you know, analysts and people looking at sort of the age profiles of teams and the, the minutes included, uh, things like that. So, um, you know, is that is that piece of work ongoing? And also, you know... Uh, in terms of, is that the you know that's the first time I've seen a piece of work like that. Is that the first thing that you've looked into it, or is that just like an update of previous work you've done in sort of the the relative age effects and, and age areas of, of football? Yeah, that's something I've done quite a bit of stuff on over the years. It's it's very much a case of you know jumping into it where you get the opportunity. And the relative aging effect, relative age effect, um, is not only football. Of course, it's in everything. Every sport you can think of, we've we've looked at this in quite a lot of detail at uh, at Infrastrada, and it's just amazing how pronounced it is in 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 every single sport, pretty much. I think there are one or two exceptions off the top of my head, but uh, it's uh, uh, it's 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 all over the place. Um, that sort of now ages of ages of uh, sportsmen and the aging of sportsmen and women has always been a big interest of mine. I mean. I've, I've even I've written a couple of articles the last week or so about uh, the the the, the, you know, the ages of the tennis players now. The fact that you don't see any teenage uh, female tennis players at the top at the moment for the first yeah you know, the last few years it's been like that um, for the first time ever. The last sort of five or six years, there's just no teenage female tennis players. And in, in the men's game, you've obviously got Roger Federer, who's playing some of the best tennis of his life and has improved from a number of years ago, but he's 34 years old. You know, these are, these are unique occurrences. So going back to that work that I presented me, first of all, it was good to have an opportunity to, uh, to actually be able to present something because then it, made, it meant that I could focus what I was doing better. And I, I think one of, the, one of the things that I liked about that was being able to, instead of just talking about average age all the time, which everybody does, was to be able to make some sort of visualization of that so that you can see what the distribution of the age is within different football teams. And I mean, uh, for obviously there's going to be quite a lot of people who weren't there, but Manchester City, for example, last season were playing with an extreme, um, a very extreme distribution of, of ages where it was all focused on players towards the end of uh, the end of their 20s, pretty much. And there were virtually no young players in that team at at all and I expect I've, I've obviously looked at the Premier League as a whole and that was what I presented on at, uh, at that particular event but then later in the year I worked on this further and, and you know we, 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 I discovered that I, I had discovered that the, the number of young players in the Premier League that were being given an opportunity was only going down and down and down and by young I define that as under 24 which a lot of people won't even regard as being particularly young but I mean this is the this is the fact of the this is the fact of the matter under twenty four it ties in with the young player of the year sort of ages you have to be under twenty four in order to be voted uh, young player of the year in the u k 
Um, but uh, the decline of the players that, uh, that of, of that age of under 24 in the Premier League is really marked. And it, you're now at a point where there's only an average of two players under that age playing for a team each weekend, which is incredible. And what I did later in the year was I compared this distribution and the average age of the Premier League to the other two big leagues, Bundesliga and, uh, and La Liga. And what's funny with those leagues is that despite the fact that they've both got the same sort of average age of players, so around about 27 is the average age of players, the distributions are just completely different. So there's a hell of a lot more young players playing in both La Liga and the Bundesliga than there are in the Premier League. And then there's a lot fewer um, of the, the sort of much older players. So for some reason, whatever reason that might be, the Premier League has a lot more older players in it. So it's something that it's ongoing. It's very much a case of just having time here and there to to dip into it. I was thinking of, um, have, I haven't looked at it for this season, for example. I want to see if this trend of reduction in uh, in young players playing in these matches is still going down in the Premier League. So I was thinking of maybe having a look at this data again in the next week and a half or so before I come over to uh, to London so I can talk further on this to people who were there last year and were interested. It's, uh, it's a very, I think it's a very interesting subject. Now, we've talked a lot about your work, and uh, I think one thing we're lucky with on the show is that a lot of the people in the blogging community follow us and listen to our show, which sort of got me thinking about a tweet that you made yesterday, which said, um, I'd like to see, uh, there's a lot of things I'd like to see from bloggers, which I'm unlikely ever to see. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on that and if there's pieces for the people out there listening who have their own blogs that you think <laughs> they should go after. Goodness me, Sam, you really put me on the, uh, on the spot. <laughs> Sorry, that was when we didn't, we didn't tell you we were going to launch on you. But um, I think um, more validation. One, yeah, one of the things we've touched on in this is uh, is about the advantage of simplicity. I'd like to see quite a lot more work when it comes to the comes to very complex models. I'd like to see a lot more very clear work showing how why why a complex model should be used instead of something simple. You know, showing that it really does make a difference. There's a there's a nice there's a good example of. Um, let me see. What did I want to say on this? Yeah, what I wanted to say on this was um, uh, that there's, there's that type of validation. There's also the type of validation where, for example, if we talk about expected goals models, um, where we can look at specific examples of goals on video and present that to show how well these probabilities that we're now seeing are reflected in the, in the, in the video of goals. That's something I'd quite like to see. That's not necessarily what I meant with that tweet. Probably what I meant with that tweet was more along... I must be careful what I twist, what I twist about the sounds of things. Um, more along the lines of, um, I'm very keen on things to be public. I'm very keen on things to be discussed. I'm very keen on things to be open. There's... There are, obviously, not everybody agrees with me, and that's fine, but uh, there's a lot of very interesting stuff out there that I'm sure a lot of us would like to know more about. But I think... Um, yeah, validation of things is, is is very important, and there's perhaps not enough of that done at the moment. That's what I'd like to see more of. So talking about analytics in general, obviously um, your time with Infrastrata Sports over the past 
15, 16 years means you've you know dabbled in quite a few different sports. Um, are there any sort of lessons that come to mind for football analytics going forward that they could p- potentially take from these other sports? <laughs> uh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's 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 very difficult. It's very difficult to know exactly what's going on in football at the moment. I mean, I, I have some ideas, but uh, it's not something that I know a great deal about from the from the inside. I think the primary thing is uh, the primary thing is just simply that people have the people within the organisations need to buy in to these things. I mean, you know, this is the, this is all new analytics. It's all new in all in a lot of the other sports as well. There has to be some sort of belief in it. And the it, it, it what I do, I work with people who are at the policymaker level. So they're not coaches. Coaches are doing other things. And I think in in football, a lot of what's trying what we're trying to do at the moment is being aimed at coaches, and that's perhaps not necessarily the right level to aim at. Then again, having said that, it's all about who's got you know who's got the power in order to change things. And, and in football, it's not completely clear to me whether people outside of the, the the coaches and the managers actually have the ability to be able to do that, or the one not the ability, the opportunity to be able to do that because of the way that football clubs are set up. And that's very different in other sports. In other sports, the the money is being raised to um, finance the the athletes and the coaches and all the rest of it, and the people making the decisions on where that money goes are not the coaches, are not the the equivalent of the football manager. They're the people who are uh, who are deciding who are deciding the policy from the top. So that's a lot easier. So I think that's uh, yeah that that's the the lesson for people who are trying to get into this is perhaps that uh, it's not necessarily the coaching level that is the thing to win over in the first place. But as I say, it's, it's, it's very difficult to know how it, exactly it all works within football. It's all very, very different within the different football clubs as well. I mean, I've, I've, been, to, I've been to a few. I've visited a few clubs, so there are certainly some out there that, uh, that, are, that, that have it sort of organised and set up in this way. But it's a, it's a very, very tricky, uh, tricky thing to answer. And, you know, I think everybody has to realise that this is an extremely young field still. I know a lot, of, uh, a lot of people out there are doing brilliant stuff, really interesting things, both from a media perspective and from a, a sort of professional sport perspective. It's still a relatively new thing, bringing data in to, uh, to help the decision-making. So... Things will change over time, but uh, it's all about, at the moment, I think it's all about uh, getting people to accept it. Before we leave, we've got a few quick questions from Twitter. So um, the first one was, how long do you think until a data viz specialist is a genuine position of need at a top club? <laughs> well, as I say, I think, it's, uh, I, I think we're not at the stage where there's enough acceptance yet to even think about how that's going to work. There, there, are data, there is data visualization going on because that's a good way of communicating. But, uh, yeah, as a, as a specific thing of only making data visualization, hmm, it could, be, could well be a, a while down the line, I would have thought. I would imagine that, you know, you, you, need, a lot more, you need a lot more sort of skills than this. Uh, you need a lot more um, different hats on than just being able to do data visualization, I guess. 
But um, I think it's starting and it'll take time, but data visualization is very important. Uh, another question is, uh, what would everyone be working on if expected goals had never been invented? <laughs> the easy answer to that is uh, expected goals. <laughs> they haven't yet been invented. <laughs> it's probably the best thing for me to say. Um, I, I should also say at this stage that you know I want to make it very clear that I'm a big fan of expected goals. I think I've probably sold myself wrong on, uh, <laughs> on Twitter by, uh, by you, moaning so much. Can you explain, can you explain why? <laughs> Um, well, it's, uh, it, is a, it is an extremely useful, uh, useful tool, extremely useful, and uh, I, you know, I like it a lot. We have an expected goals model, just as everybody else does. <laughs> There's plenty of them around, um, and you know, it, it, does, it, does help, it does help to put things into perspective. It's, uh, it's something I'm a, I like a great deal, but um, so I, you know, if it didn't exist, someone would be inventing it now. That's that's. The, the, the short answer to that, I uh, I probably I probably well, I certainly moan too much about it. It's because I, I get irritated by having a lot of shop maps on my uh, on my timeline on a Saturday afternoon. But uh, I think I should probably just uh, shut up. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a nice little tool, and uh, that would be the thing that people would be working on if uh, if it hadn't been invented. Good answer. <laughs> I know you said you're a bit on the outside of the actual uh, football sort of club level analytics side, but how advanced do you think analytics com- is in rugby compared to football at even the media side, never mind the inside club side? Um, well, again, there's plenty of data in rugby, a lot of data. There's, I find the data in rugby a lot easier to interpret because in a way rugby is a series of set pieces uh, the, the game is a series of set pieces that's what's going on and ruck effectively is a set piece um, in, 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 a, in the same way that you know, football has a very small number of set pieces so it's not as, it's not as difficult I think to analyse as, uh, as, as football is with the way that that moves around and what does, yeah, what does all that data that we have in football actually mean is still a big question for me I think so it's easier to do um, when it comes to how it's being used in the media, I don't think it's necessarily that great. We tried at the World Cup, my team, we tried to um, use it in an analytical way, what we had access to at the World Cup. And I think that was, you know, that was up to a point fairly successful. We were able to write some quite insightful pieces, I thought, into uh, using data. Um, and using using some video as well, with uh, with uh, um, Chris uh, Chris was Chris tipping one of my guys and Alex Stewart, who a lot of people might know, who also worked on that team, and uh, my colleague Valentine Young. We we did quite a lot of stuff there. It's in the in the sport within the sport itself. Um, I don't know whether whether you guys know uh, know Bill Gerald, who worked uh, with Saracens for a while. He'd spent a lot of time trying to get these types of ideas into football with uh, with no great success and so he ended up uh, having an opportunity which he could take to work in rugby and he worked in rugby with uh, Saracens for a number of years he's a professor at the Leeds, Biz- Leeds Business School you know him actually Tom don't you yeah I did his, I uh, did his module in second year <laughs> yeah exactly so I know he's uh, he's worked with with Saracens and, and in the time that he was there they became uh, 
very successful when the two things are linked is obviously a discussion point but uh, it can be a, it can be a much wider reason why a team is successful so there are things going on but I think it's it's not necessarily more advanced um, than in football uh, it's still it's still a case of uh, it's still I think it's still in its uh, in its early days just as it is in uh, in football and just as it is in other sports really Cool. Um, that's all of our questions from Twitter. Um, just before we leave, do you have any stuff you'd like to plug? <laughs> um, well, I guess just you know, if people are more, if people are interested in some of the things I've said, if people are interested in some of uh, uh, some of what I think, you know, outside of this, I mean, I have a Twitter feed, Simon Gleave. That's my you know, my name. It's just for, as simple as that. Um, obviously, the uh, company I work for we also have some uh, some feeds which are worth putting out there so Infostrada Live is our is our main football uh, football feed for you know statistical facts and that sort of thing links to um, articles that we that we make using data etc Infostrada Gold which I mentioned earlier is our Olympic uh, feed and we have the Euro Club Index feed um, and you know I'd like to obviously encourage people to Look out for our virtual medal table and, uh, and and check that Euro Club index sites to see how their team's doing. Um, I welcome comments on these things. There's uh, there's nothing better than hearing what people think of these things. Helps us to improve stuff as well. It's always interesting, even if it's to tell us that we've done something wrong. You know, it's it's useful, very useful information to hear. So we do our best on these things, but uh, sometimes it's good to have a, an expert eye on to say, you know, that person that's sitting in the bronze medal position in your virtual medal table uh, has uh, has not qualified or uh, is injured or whatever. And then I can double check that with our data guys to make sure that that's uh, yeah, that, that that person is is in there for a reason, etc. So. All of that's, uh, yeah, th th those I suppose would be what you would describe as, uh, as plugs. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 like the, I like the discussion that takes place on Twitter. I like uh, reading all the stuff that's out there as much as I can and seeing what other people think and seeing what other people are, uh, are developing. It's, really, it's a really interesting time. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on. It's been fun, and it's, uh, it's good to get a bit of a history of stats and football and a bit of your history as well. So it's nice to finally get you on the show. Thanks very much. I've enjoyed it.